This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel, and it's comedy time on the podcast. Today's guest has had multiple appearances on The Tonight Show and Conan. His comedy album was recently nominated for a Grammy, and he has numerous Netflix specials. He shares what it's like to be from a funny family. He gives his picks for the Mount Rushmore of comedy, and we explore the notion of starting a sanctuary to protect gummy bears. He is more than just your average guy. He is the greatest average American. Coming up, Tennessee's own Nate Bargatze. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free. You're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. Thanks for having me. This is fun. It is fun, and I'm kind of thrilled for it because I saw you on a Netflix special that you shared with several people. You were the first guy out on a series, The Stand-Ups, and I thought, I wonder if this is any good. And you were the first one that I saw, and I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. And that was sort of my first discovery, even though I had heard your name through several peers that were comedians that had said, this guy's on the rise. But you have a reverse Superman syndrome, which is that you are super comedian by day, and then at night you perform as mild-mannered Nate Bargatze. Your being a regular Joe is why everybody feels like this dude's a friend of mine. I mean, I don't know for sure that's why everybody says it, but that's the goal is you want people to think that they're hanging out with their buddy. Like when people always come up and they say, hey, like you remind me of someone, that's always the best compliment you could possibly get. And then they're like, you know, you're like my brother, you're like my friend or whatever. Uh, you're my husband. It's just relating to him, even relating to like, relationship jokes sometimes the wife relates to my side versus the husband relates you know it's like just talk about stuff that's happening every day it's, it's a huge help i like it and i also like your style which is really just you talking you're not going punchline to punchline where it's like a natural storytelling which kind of sneaks up on people and i'm sure when you were starting when you would step into clubs where people were bada bing bada boom <laughs> comics mm. was that a difficult transition from coming off of other comics to your stuff I used to always say, like, I never thought of myself as a storyteller. I never thought I was, like, good at telling stories. I didn't grow up, like, and it was like, got to hear these stories. But I did start telling stories, and then at first I was writing jokes, and I would kind of do a joke, but I was always in the joke, so it was always around me. So I would do the jokes, and then I would also do the stand-up. And I always thought I was a storyteller in a joke form. Like, I could tell a story in a joke form. And so I never try to be too far away from a laugh. And that was just pure panic of like, when you do shows in New York, I never wanted it silent. I was almost scared of the silence. So I would always just try to be always just on top of it. You know, and the farther you are from a laugh, the bigger the laugh has to be. So I never wanted to put that much pressure on a joke. And so, you know, unless I want to put that much pressure on a joke, but most of them you're like, I want it to build up, you know, and slowly just, it's like, you're, I'm getting you, you're laughing, you're like, to build up this big, gigantic laugh. Well, but now you're not afraid of the pause because there's a little more security. You've developed a style. I think when a comic begins, that silence, you think you're bombing if there's two seconds of silence. But imagine that's like yeah. a musician playing every square note in the face of the audience. And yeah. the music is between the notes. You know, just yeah. as in art, it's not the thing they're drawing. Sometimes it's the negative space around the thing that makes it interesting. It takes understanding your own voice and point of view to be able to enjoy those pauses. Yeah, I mean, I'm still learning it now. I've went from clubs to theaters. So New York's very fast paced. 
So you're doing audiences that sometimes they don't even know that their comedy show is about to happen. You're like in a restaurant or you're performing for people that are just there for whatever reason. So you got to win a lot of people over. And then you go to clubs, like start headlining clubs, and it's like still kind of a rapid. And now doing theaters, it does need to breathe a little bit more. I still have the fear of it. I don't ever just sit completely in silence, but way more control of it now. And I'm actually playing with it even right now just to learn, you know what, I can slow down. I can sometimes get too fast where I'm like, I don't think they're even getting all the jokes. There's points where I don't know if I care if you got all the jokes. I'm kind of trying to make it be rapid. But there's times where I need to be like, oh, I got to slow it down. And like, let that joke sink in, whether I come back to it later or whatever reason. You can set yourself up a lot, which is nice. Yeah. And they have bought a ticket to you, which is quite a difference to buying a ticket to a random comedy show and two drinks yeah. off the street from some comic slapping a tickets on their hand saying, come tonight, I can get you in at half price. Yeah. And the amount of times in LA, when I first moved to LA, I remember sitting down with a fellow comic to eat lunch at a place called the Elegant Tortilla, a Mexican restaurant. And there was a thing on the table that said, comedy show tonight. And we're looking around going, where, where could they possibly do a comedy show? And so we said to the waiter, where does the comedy show happen? And he said, oh, right over there. We roll the salad bar away. And then we push those tables to the side. <laughs> and he goes, are you coming? And we go, well, we're comedians. We just moved here. He goes, oh, I book it. The waiter was the booker of the show. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know those days, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. When we showed up to do it, when they started moving the salad bar, the audience had no idea a comedy show was about to break out. You know, I don't even remember how the night went. I just remember the one joke, which was I got up and said, the elegant tortilla, this is pretty nice. You know, last week I played the sophisticated burrito uh, and this is so much, so much nice. Yeah. You just kind of yeah. grab what you can grab. You grab whatever you can. I mean, that's the stuff that teaches you all this. It's the confidence that, when you do these bigger shows, it's like well, none of them can go as bad as they've gone. It's just impossible. Like you do a theater, you're like, I did a show on a TGI Fridays. It's not going to be worse than that. So it's you, you, you do feel more comfortable as you, as you get longer doing comedy. You're like, you, you have the jokes too. And you're like, I know what I'm doing. And I remember Louis C.K. said once, he's like, you don't get good at comedy till like 20 years. And when I heard it, I'm like probably eight years in or something like that. And you're almost like, come on, man, you're picking a number that like feels like it's impossible to get to. But now that I'm at 19, I get what he's saying. It's not that you don't get comedy at eight and 10 and 12 and all that, but like where I'm at now at 19, it's a different game. You know, it's like you're funny. And so then you can talk about a lot. Everything kind of opens up where you can talk about, but you don't want to take advantage of the crowd. I mean, you still have the threat of like right now, they have high expectations. I want to meet their expectations. Uh, I want to exceed them. Your pressures are just very different, but they laugh a lot more at even the little stuff. Do you remember in the very beginning what your, let's say, signature bit at the time, which was like a actual comedy bit that you thought, I'll never be able to do a show without this thing. Yeah. When you build a very first thing where you know you're a comic and now you got to go do five minutes and 10 minutes and 20 minutes, like... That thing is always coming with you, and probably now it's incidental. And when I first started, I always used to say, like, what's good for comics is you need to learn how to murder, like we say. Like, you need to learn how to kill. So you got to, like, do the same jokes over and over again. Like, open mics are tough because you can't really work on the same jokes. You got to try to, at some points, get in front of real crowds 
and get a five minute set, you know, is going to work. Like, you know, that like if the Tonight Show walks in right now and said, you got to do a set, you know what you would do. You got to have that. So then you know what jokes are supposed to sound like when you're like, all right, these are doing good. And then when you add the new jokes, you know, oh, I got to get them up to that. And I mean, I had a joke about Superman or something. I've, it's, it might have joke been dumb, but it's like, it's a bird, it's a plane. No, it's Superman. Like someone's eyesight was that bad. They can't tell between a bird, a plane, no, a man. It was like that kind of joke. Right, right. It would destroy. So I closed on that at the beginning. So when you're doing those, I mean, you think, well, I'll never write a joke as good as this. <laughs> like this right. is it. If you close your first Tonight Show with it and then they have you come back, you're like, wait, what? I got to have another closer. Yeah, I got to have another one. No. I mean, I can barely remember the joke now. And there was a point that joke was the most important thing in my life. It just always changes. You never feel like you can top what you just did. For me now, even when I tape a special, you're like, well, I don't know how I'm supposed to do more than this. I'm out of stuff. There's nothing I can ever talk about. And that's how you go into every new hour with just pure defeat. And then somehow, somehow you figure something out. That's what's interesting about the wave of it. The first time you reach a level of having a headline set, you've built up to 45 or 50 minutes. You figured out how to deal with the checks are dropping, fighting with the margarita yeah. machine. And, and I remember one of the bits I used to do when the checks would come, because it, it's deadly. That moment, you're revving them all up and then the checks go to every table and everyone's looking down and they're trying to split. Did you have that? Who had that? You know, and you're like, Ugh. so you have to kind of come up with a check covering bit. Like you just have to yeah. just wallow for a little bit and then you can come back when it's the focus is there and i used to reach down and take the check off the table in front of me and then i go oh my god who had the total that was very expensive yeah yeah yeah. and they would laugh a little bit and then i was like all right let's get this done people but yeah. when you do have that headline set you think that's it now you're covered in body armor and once you spend it on a special or in some way you've gone out there it's not like a folk singer where they want to hear those things over and over once the special's out there, uh, you go back to the bottom of the totem pole, you're mining for gold again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's how it goes. You know, it's funny, the check spots. So in New York, when you try to get into the comedy clubs, they had a check spot. It was actual, an actual spot where you would go up and do checks. And it'd always be like when you're a new comic. And that's how you would get in with the club is be like, I'll go up there. I remember, I remember doing check spots. People don't realize like how crazy check spots are. Hey, last call is not easy either. Last call is pretty tough because they go, anybody else? The table's like, oh, do we want something else and all this? And then, but the checks come. I could argue people wouldn't have known I went on stage. They're just in their own world. So you've been in New York and you just get done, <laughs> just silence. And then they bring up the last guy. <laughs> it's interesting that in your most recent special, that was the outdoor special you did, Social Distance. That was the greatest average American. And then, of course, you're faced by helicopter chase going on, which turned out to be great. It was really, it yeah. showed how nimble you are and how on your feet you are, because this is a big moment to be taping a special. And you don't expect one helicopter and then more helicopters. I know that you dealt with it on stage and we can see it if we go to Netflix. But what was your internal monologue as it began to happen? Well, the whole thing was like, I had to buy a new shirt, a sweater that day, because I didn't think, well, it's going to be 59 degrees outside or 61. Like, it's a little chilly. And so there's like all this stuff that's added to it. You do two shows when you do a special, and then you edit the best of them. The first show, I did 43 minutes, because the audience had masks, and I couldn't really hear them. People understand, like, that. I was timing that set out to be like 60 minutes. And just the energy of a room can take 17 minutes out of it. It's unreal. 
And then when the helicopters happened, I'll be honest with you, I needed them because I needed the time. <laughs> but when they first we heard them, it was like, all right. You know, it was like that kind of sound where you're like, you can't tell if everybody knows. Sometimes if you're like, if they can't hear it, I don't need to say anything. But it was getting so loud that you're like, well, I can't not address it. And so I just addressed it. And luckily it was funny and it worked out. And that's why we left it in. If it wasn't going to be funny, we wouldn't have. But it kind of showed the moment that we were in. It was COVID. It was outside. It's like, you don't know what's going to happen. We found out later there was a police chase. And that's why there were so many helicopters. That's why they kept coming back. You know, it made it like interesting. I was glad to put it in. I don't really do crowd work. I don't do like kind of this kind of stuff. And so it was fun to be like, you at least get to show everybody, well, like I can't. <laughs> right. I don't hope to do it. No, I know. At that point, probably wishing they drop a rope ladder and take you out of the mess. What a great ending. Did you see Nate go up in the sky there? You know. Because you don't know when it's coming. You're in the middle of a joke and you're like, I'm towards the end of this joke. So I think, I mean, I said it in the special, like I can see them. And so I'm like, I got to get this joke out before that helicopter gets to where it's going to interrupt the laugh. And it was a whole mind game. It's fun though. And it's great that it is captured on tape because you can't recreate it. You know, you're not going to tell that story after the fact. It doesn't really kind of work the same way. I remember a uh, horse and buggy sound going by the outside of a club one time when I called it an Amish drive-by or something. It just only works for that second. Yes. yes. How much writing do you do of material discipline during the day versus writing on stage, retelling stories to hone them? Yeah, it's all on stage. I never write. I write set list out and I write a set list out a lot. That's about the only writing. Maybe if I come up with a tag, maybe I'll like try to put it in my phone or something like on stage. I think about it. If I have something happen, I'm just kind of all day, like it's in my mind and I'm like swishing it around and like, you know, I'm excited to go like do the, the joke. I'm excited to tell the story. It makes it fun to do. I like doing that. Like I like working on stage. That was a very New York thing because you could go on stage every night. And when you're not telling jokes, like I, I was never like a joke teller. I, it was hard for me to write stuff out. So I would just tell it and you kind of fill it in the moment. And now over 19 years, it's like, I kind of have a general idea if it's going to work or not going to work. I'll still throw some stuff out. I do a lot of it now in these theaters. When I'm building a new hour, like I'll tape another special. And when I get done taping it, you got basically four months until the special comes out where you want to try to have like 40, 45 minutes new. And so I open with new when I switch it. I can keep a really good track of what I'm doing. And so like, I know like, all right, I made it to 15 minutes tonight with some new stuff. And A, the crowd's excited. They're more lenient at the beginning. So it's like I can kind of put this stuff in kind of a safe place and just kind of be messing with it. And then I have some old jokes, too, that never made a special. I'll just pull those back out. And you just kind of do that. And slowly, you just build it until you're eventually, you don't have to do anything old again. Tell me this. Who are, for you, some of the faces on your Mount Rushmore of comedy? People that you looked up to? You know, I would say Seinfeld. Seinfeld's a big one for me. I'm a big, big Seinfeld fan. I, a comedian, when he did that, I, the last time I'm telling you that special, I mean, I could quote that special. Giant Seinfeld fan, Brian Regan. My dad bought a CD, and then my dad called me. It was like 2003. And then my dad was like, you got to get this CD, Brian Regan Live. And it was like, when I first heard it, I was like, I don't know how this guy's not the most famous person alive. Yeah, I don't know. I was just like blown away by it. And then the other two might be, it could be Chris Rock, you know, then Eddie Murphy, which, you know, you could have Chappelle or Chris, probably both. I, I like Chris Rock and then Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, to have that material at that age, it'd be 22. That's a phenom. 
Yeah, he was so charismatic and he was so dynamic, just a bust out star. Oh, yeah. It's hard to come up with stuff. I mean, he has no real life experiences at that point. Like, that's where a lot of your comedy comes from. You got to think he's 22, he's famous, and to be able to put out Raw and Delirious, which was so funny. It wasn't like heavy or it wasn't this thing. It was just funny at that age. It's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, roughly those. But I listened to Seinfeld and Regan. I mean, Seinfeld, I listened to the most growing up. Well, you know, I sent him a text today saying that you and I would be talking. And I said, hey, have you seen Nate Bergazzi? He said, yeah, I really, really like him a lot. Great stuff. He said he didn't recall ever meeting before. So I don't know if you have, but. No, no, I, that's, my, my, that's my dream is to meet him. I'm, I mean, I'm honored that he even knows who I am. So I've never met him or never really talked to him or anything. I, I mean, I would love to talk to him one day. And hopefully I figure one day maybe our paths will cross. But uh, I'm obviously a giant fan. You know, he had a big influence on me in my early career. I had seen him on The Tonight Show when I lived in Omaha, Nebraska. So it was a fantasy come true to be in L.A. and be working at places like the Comedy Magic Club with him and eventually working with him on his sitcom. And I wrote with him on some American Express commercials and you know, got to be an opening act. And it was the sidecar of success every step of the way to be there when the theme of his sitcom was being written and the greatest dome covered tour through comedy that you could get was to be in his satellite oh yeah i mean he did there's a comedy club in cleveland called hilarities and they have like a fax or something that's when they found out i guess the show was getting picked up and so they faxed over to that club the fax is like still up there yeah i'm like obsessed with that guy and like it's i moved from chicago to new york and it was because of comedian. It, just to be able to see that and see him and see the clubs. And I mean, so many comics around my age and that started around my time. We just, that was like everything to us. And for the listener, though, I want them to know the documentary comedian was not widely seen. It played in theaters and I went and there were two people there. Jerry had come off his show and he had retired his material. And this show showed him developing new content going to those places like the Comedy Cellar in New York, and also kind of owning the fact that while he was famous, he didn't get that long of lead from them before they wanted material. And he showed all of that growth and development. And it was actually pretty brave and vulnerable to do coming off of a nine-year gigantic hit sitcom <laughs> and retiring his stuff. So, I mean, I do think the comics loved it because it was like, wow, this is a brave new world to start fresh. You know what's funny? I saw it, I think, alone in theater in Chicago. I don't ever want, I don't want to say it, but it was like, I think it was. I watched it by myself. I tell people when they want to go like, well, what's comedy like? I go watch Comedian. That will show you what it's like and you, and you enjoy it. I mean, it was so good. And he's, he's just the guy. He's the one everybody listens to. And like, you know, I mean, I don't wear short sleeves because <laughs> like he said not to wear short sleeves. I don't wear shorts on. Like there's all this weird stuff you're like, well, I won't do because he would be like, oh, I don't know why someone would do that. And I'm like, well, I'll never do it now. Yeah. Never, Jerry. Well, that's kind of <laughs> great, though. That's kind of like having your own Obi-Wan Kenobi tell you what's the next step to become a comedy yes. Jedi, right? And I remember I was very young and went as an opening act. I went to the non-sexy cities. There was always people who wanted to go to the big, hot cities, but I would go to the cities that people didn't want to go to. And he was selling out, right? Like theaters back before the show? or He was. He was doing well. And it, it was yeah. funny because we were flying commercially initially, and then we something happened to a flight, and he said a phrase that was really interesting. There was a chance to rent a private plane, 
At that time, it might have been $3,000. That seemed like a ton of money. And he said, I'm going to die with more than $3,000 in the bank. So let's do this. Let's get to the venue. Let's do the show. And so we were on the plane with his touring producer at the time. His name was Kevin. What was funny was we had had a debate about how quickly we could fall asleep on the plane. So we had a bet and we literally were facing each other with our fingers crossed and our feet on the ground, having a bet who could fall asleep first. And the other guy, the third guy was supposed to keep an eye on it. And he's got a Zen way of doing it. You know, I can knock out on a plane like nothing, but how could you even know who won? You both have your eyes closed. You both sleep. Yeah. And the idea that two comics are doing that. Yeah. It's the nuttiest thing. And and there were so many funny moments that just generally off stage, being in his presence, he's a guy that is always in observation mode. And, you know, they always talked about uh, people could cross the street with him for a slice of pizza and the other person would come back with indigestion and he'd have 10 minutes worth of material. So I do remember kind of one of the crazier moments. We were in New York playing somewhere and I was opening for him. And I, I don't know if it was the Super Bowl or the Rose Bowl, but there was something on the weekend and we were watching and he goes, well, it seems like we ought to have a wager on this. We got a bet. And I was like, okay, well, what do you mm-hmm. want to bet? And I can't even tell you who the two teams were. He goes, well, let's bet a sandwich, a lunch, a sandwich or something. Okay. So I take the team he doesn't want and the thing is over and he wins. He goes, you owe me a sandwich. I go, okay. So now I'm returned to LA and I think I'm going to be hysterical. I make a sandwich. And I put it in an envelope, like a vanilla envelope, with mayonnaise, with (laughs) lettuce, the words, and I mail it to him. This was before there was any kind of white dust in envelopes and pre-9-11. So I do that. And I think it's hilarious. And like two days later, he's going to call me and be laughing. Well, he didn't go home for like three weeks. (laughs) There was this soggy, moldy, it was like the freakiest thing that he opened. And he's like, what is this? And I was like... I owed you a sandwich. Like I was like sheepishly, like it was a joke that bombed, but it just felt like I, I, I have to do this. I love it. Well, that joke is actually great. And it's just funny that he didn't go home. (laughs) Well, and so it kind of startled him. It wasn't like, Oh, that's hilarious. You owe me a sandwich. It was like, who would send me a big pile of bologna and you should almost never told him that his whole life. (laughs) You'd just be like, I one time got mailed a sandwich. And I think about that guy every day. (laughs) Like where does, where is that guy at? Is he watching me at all times? I know. That's the thing. You're always terrified when your mail arrives. Oh, no. Now it's yeah. spaghetti and meatballs, you know. You know, he's, he stayed with stand-up. Like him and like Leno. I like that they stayed with stand-up. Stand-up is the reason I believe. It's the reason I get to do anything. I want to do it for the rest of my life. It's the thing that I love the most. You know, a lot of times you see guys like they quit or they, I mean, Letterman stopped doing stand up. A lot of people stopped doing stand up. That's why I always loved like Leno. Leno did it. Leno did shows. He did spots. He goes and still does shows and spots now. Seinfeld did yep. all that stuff. Like, I like the guys that are like, look, I will die doing stand up. This is what we do. Yeah. And I think Jerry always equated it to surfing that the art of being in there is getting up on that board and finding mm-hmm. the wave and then cresting the wave and knowing when to start back up. And that is a very live experience. Nothing can replace that. The sitcoms, the movies, those are long-term, slow-release laughters with pledge. And you don't even know if it's getting a laugh in the other city. Mm-hmm. So that immediacy, I think, is where the adrenaline rush is. Even if it's just the aha of the audience taking that moment and you know sparking them. 
Well, you can dissect it so much. I mean, it's, yeah, like you said, it's like, A, it's that, it is that, it's that reaction. That's what's funny. They always talk about comics. Like you, you go try to sell a show or something and they're, you know, they're like, I don't know, this is funny. And you're like, well, I do because <laughs> I, my job is I find out every night if it's funny. Every night I find out. It's interesting when you do the same jokes over too and you can tell like, they laugh at different points. You know, the second they're going to laugh, which is always crazy because, you know, making someone laugh is not easy. And, but you know, like the word that's like, and now you're about to start laughing. I mean, there's nothing like it, you know? You also know the moment that you slip up. One word difference, not funny, right? Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. you just go, oh, why did I tangle that moment up? And then you kind of feel slightly crestfallen that it's like, ah. I just chip myself out of that one extra laugh. I would always have outs on my stories. And like, so I just always have like exit ramps. Like I can get off because you get stuck where you start telling like some five minute story and it doesn't go good. And you're like, dude, I'm in this story now. These people are not on board and I have to just tell it a ton forever. I love that term though, exit ramps, because it makes a lot of sense to me. When I was doing a one man show and I didn't want it to be the same every night, I had a thing I called open and closed doors. If I mm -hmm. got into an area about childhood games or something, I could totally open the door and say to the audience, what did you play growing up? What was it that you bought on eBay? Whatever. The, the dialogue was fine. And if they were lively or they had a cool story, I'd keep the door open. If they kind of mm -hmm. got quiet or they didn't really engage, it just closed the door and go to the lawn yard bit. And yeah. I, I have to tell you, that was some of the most fun any night because I would talk about what did you take to show and tell and a moment where you ask a question where they go, I haven't thought about that in a long time. And then they say, well, I took some roadkill or whatever they say, their spouse yeah. looks at them like, you've never told me this story. A person just bursts out with some thing that they should be talking to a therapist about and they talk to you about <laughs> it. Yeah. That's a fun question to ask them. What did you take on show and tell? Cause it is, it makes them think. Somebody forgot it was show and tell. So on the fly, at the bus stop, they had a stick and they picked up a cocoon. They found this like gray cocoon on the roadside. They got it on a fork stick and carried it into the science class. And they watched it for a week and then realized it was a dried dog turd. But they had believed it was a cocoon that was going to blossom into a butterfly. Yeah. So it kind of got them by on show and tell that day. Big aha on, That's on so Friday. Good. I know. <laughs> and to hear them tell the story, like I can't top it on stage. And I always say to them, I don't care who gets the laugh tonight. It could be you, it could be me. It all counts. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So I always say, I don't care if you're laughing with me or at me. <laughs> it's all laugh. I want to step back a little bit historically because I do know your dad and I know that you have exploited your dad from yes. being a clown to being a magician to all of those things in the titles of your albums and in the storytelling. And he's a, he's a very funny guy. He's a very unique guy. He has a, a unique set of skills. And I had the pleasure of seeing him not that long ago when I was in Nashville. His enthusiasm for, I had some bit I was trying to do at a corporate thing and I wanted to do a COVID testing gag. And when I just told him the slightest bit about it, he was completely invested. Okay, we're going to the hardware store. No, we're going to the auto store. He wanted this bit to work. We're going to drive. We're going to fix it. We're going to build it. We're going to make the thing happen. I mean, he was in it deep. And it was so yeah. fun. And you know that side of it because you grew up as a kid with a magic dad and a clown dad yeah, who was always coming up with gags. And like, that's the ultimate dad joke is 
to think that everybody's dad is, that's how they behave. Yeah. The, you know, the difference is uh, it's like, well, they're professionals at it. They're better than the average dad at all this stuff. You know, when you grew up around that, I mean, I, when I was, I was just born into it. When I first started talking about him, like, it wasn't like my first joke was my dad's a magician, which most people would think. It's like when you grow up and your dad's a magician, there's a point where you think, is everybody's dad a magician? I don't, it doesn't seem <laughs> right. weird to me. I just, it's what I saw every day. It was like, you know, he might as well have been a construction worker. And then it was when I started like telling people about it and talking about it. And I was like, oh yeah, that is right. That's right. This is crazy. Right. <laughs> then I started talking about it a lot. And my dad's awesome. Cause it's like, it's what I got from him. I think I get my timing from him. He's always been fun to like, you know, I've made fun of like our Bargatze family. We're, we're a very fun family. A lot of crazy stuff happens. So there's a lot of stories, a lot of, and everybody's always cool about like talking about it. Like, I mean, I love everybody. So you, you have love. And when you tell all this stuff, but it's just, it's no one's upset about it. It's always about the joke. You know, my dad would always be like, well, if it gets a laugh, then it gets a laugh. And you need to do it. And <laughs> right. to have someone that understands that, it's pretty rare, especially with comedians. I mean, nobody, nobody gets it's about the joke. He's getting the last laugh as it's circling around, right? Because you've been talking about mm -hmm. him so much that your fan base now knows him as a character. And yet he's got a very good mm -hmm. comedy act. And so he's now on occasion opening for you at these venues. Like he gave birth to a, a job security by having you become a yeah. Vegas headliner. <laughs> yeah. He, boy, he destroys too. And like, that's the thing. Like he's about to retire. I, he can come out to whatever he wants to come out. You know, sometimes it's like, it's a grind out here. So it's like, you can't go, we're doing every weekend, but like he'll do a lot. I don't really announce it. So no one knows. He'll get a standing ovation when he walks out. And then he destroys. And that's what's fun for me and for us, my mom, my brother and sister. My dad's unreal. and We've seen him our whole life and we know how great he is. And it's nice to now see people be like, you know, I think they think, oh, you're bringing your dad out. They're like, all right, I'll go along. You, <laughs> I'll right. watch your dad. I, when I meet people afterwards, that's all they talk about is him. They don't even talk about me. And I'm like, hey, this is a, I did a pretty good <laughs> job up there, all right, everybody. And they only talk about him because he destroys. Well, let me ask you this. You have siblings. So- what business are they in and does comedy impact that? I mean, if you're from this funny family, did your brother and sister end up in something where comedy is beneficial? Yeah, well, my sister will tell you she's the funniest in her family. My sister works for me now. Okay. Which is great. As things gotten crazier, I've needed to hire some people and I, I love doing that. My brother teaches at a school. He's vice principal at the school now, a school that he started with some people. And so he was a missionary and that was like my dad's big joke was like he, uh, at the beginning was he's like, I got a son that's a missionary and a son that's a comedian. And my sister was like, had a regular job or something at that point. He's like, so basically guaranteed no money. Oh, just a missionary right. and a comedian. My brother does a lot of speaking uh -huh. and talks with people and has just a giant heart and is really great with that. My sister is just, she's very funny. She's a good go with the flow person. She's got like that attitude. And my mom, my mom is very funny too. My mom always makes jokes. I mean, people, when they hang out with my mom, they're always like, oh, she's actually pretty funny. Like every, everybody's got some fun and funny to them. And it's really a perfect like comedy family. I mean, you can't really hurt her feelings <laughs> or anything. And it's just about being funny. That's a pretty good testimonial though for Nate Bergazzi to give his sister, the funniest in the family endorsement, she could probably go on the road on her own with just that. 
Yeah, well, she might be dirtier than me because she's uh, not afraid of my parents like I am. <laughs> yeah, Abigail's always funny, and, but she'll tell you. You, you can just ask her about it. She'll, I got I got this new hour. I, I got a couple of little things about her and something about my brother, too. But it's fun to because she's the youngest. She lived a different life than we lived. What are your fans called? Are they Nate Landers or do you have some name for the fans that follow you out there? Uh, when we say folks for the podcast, for the Nate Land podcast that I do. And so like say, hello folks. And I see, I don't really say anything about my stand up. I mean, it's just, I mean, I look at them as like, they're just me. It's a bunch of me's out there. Right. Like they're, you know, you want to be relatable and you want to be like, yeah, I mean, I look at everybody in the crowd. You're like, I probably would be friends with all these people. I mean, I think we all have a lot in common. Yeah. I never really, there's not a word or something. No, that's fine. It, it is interesting because I don't think it's an insult that you're a normal guy, but I do think that it's kind of like fanfare for the common man. Everybody comes out like it's a reunion with you, right? Because they're just mm -hmm. your people. They're like cousins and friends and neighbors and all that kind of stuff. So you started a podcast. Did that start over uh, COVID times? Yeah, yeah. I've always kind of debated. I, I like the idea of, I think it's good to be funny uh, constantly and have to be like the pressure of like you're recording something, you got to be funny. And so during COVID, when I, like everything kind of died down, it was like, all right, I should start something because it's like, I just want to keep moving. And I mean, it's really helped me. And like, it helps you, I don't know, you're pacing and a lot of stuff for your stand up. I enjoy doing it. And then with the people that are listening to it, like they come to shows now and they're just such great people. And, you know, and it's just about being funny. And so it's not like we try to get heavy or anything and you just go be funny on it. And that's just a good muscle to always be working. I know comics that stopped during COVID. And I mean, you can tell like when they go back up, you're like, I mean, they are rusty. Yeah. You can really fall off. And so you got to really stay on it. It's also hopeful, even though it's got a different tone and it's just relaxed mm -hmm. and conversational, it does give you some purpose. So in the yes. thick of it, when we were in the deep part of the first year of the pandemic, which was not a picnic, all of the people gathering went away. All of the production went away. Just sort of the thing to go, like, I'm not even traveling. You know, it was a little bit maddening. And I think that the podcast world certainly exploded. Also, yeah. by now, what's really funny is I don't know how many of my friends finally wrote and published a book, but now I'm buying books <laughs> every day. You know, like, hey, my book's yeah. out, my book's out. I ask people, oh, do you listen to podcasts? And there's three answers. And maybe you get these same ones. Yes, love podcasts. Oh, I'm addicted to podcasts. No, I don't want anything to do with it. That Don't get me started. Like it's a drug. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, I don't yeah. dare try that. And the third is, I'll listen to yours if you'll listen to mine. They've they've got a podcast. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, it's funny. They're becoming people. I think the younger generation, they're watching them on YouTube, the ones that are filmed. You know, it's like TV shows almost. They've become, the, it's, a, it's a perfect thing for like us, like comedians and entertainers and people that are funny. It's like you're doing morning radio almost. Yeah. Everybody has an access to it without having to like go get up at six in the morning and go actually do the radio. Right, right. It doesn't cost anything. Does it cost anything? I noticed in your studio, is that attached to your house? You guys often have winter hats on, like you're in the gulag or something, like you're sitting in a frozen lake in a yurt ice fishing or something. Yeah, it's just upstairs. I just wear those hats. <laughs> okay. Like it goes... I mean, it's really cold out, like, or something. We record around, like, noon or 11 or something. So, I mean, I'm not far from just waking up. And I'm always cold in the morning. So, some of it is, like, I'm still just, like, warming up. So, I'll, I'll have to throw a hat on. Like, you know, as a comedian, your hours are 
you know, I would love to get up at like nine, but it's, it's just not happening right now. Right. You're on comedy hours and that's okay. Like you're, you're yeah. still performing yeah. at night, right? Brian Regan and I talked about the importance of a performance nap. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a comic just needs, it's not from laziness. We can be lazy other ways, but the nap is an essential part of the routine. Well, you got to think like tonight we have two shows, so I won't go on stage to the second show until probably 10 or 10, 15. And so like, I'll be till 11, 15, you got to be the most on. And so it's hard for you to go from that to then go to bed by midnight. You're just not going to do it. It's like, so you're hoping maybe I can get to bed by three. And then that's just what you do. I do naps too, but I've been trying to kind of slow them down. And so I've been trying to make sure I sleep as long as I can into the day. And then you can be like, all right, I'm up and let me just go through my day. But you're going to sleep till eight or noon, I mean, 11 or noon. It depends. We slept on the bus last night. So that's always a give or take. Sometimes you sleep amazing. Sometimes you don't. So your Nateland podcast, at least the tagline I read was something that you tackle the questions that no one asks. Is that right? It's a little Seinfeldy, and like it's a, it's basically a podcast about nothing. The point of it is just to give jokes, just to make jokes, right. just to be funny. And so we just talk about stuff that no one cares about. So because of that, I wrote some questions. Typically, I don't write any questions for this, but I decided to write some questions that no one asks for you, and you can decide to answer them or not. I love but it. But I thought it might be a kind of a good forum, given that you're an expert at, at tackling those <laughs> kinds of questions. Yeah. The first one is, do you hate rhetorical questions as much as I do? That's a yes, right? I don't, or do I not want to be answered? I don't know how you answer that. Or if, right? If you, yeah, maybe you don't. You just sit there. As a comedian, I guess it would be, you should not answer. Because that's what we want from the audience, is we want to be like, yo, I don't want you to be involved. I'm just asking <laughs> to get into my joke. Just for, just laying fishing line out there so I can come hook, hook you and bring you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can an atheist use the Lord's name in vain? I mean, I think so. They don't, what do they care? They, yeah, they have, they have no worries about it. I mean, that's probably the one person that can use it and not have a fear. Right. Just freely, maybe in the small G way, they can say it all they want. Yeah. Maybe they don't say it because they're like, well, at least I'll do something just, you know, if I'm wrong. So. <laughs> all right. The fear that retroactively they might get punished. Yes. And they're like, you know, I'm already, I don't believe it, but I'm not going to say it also. I don't want to double right. up on it. You, you better believe in hell in case that happens. Yes. Yeah. Is it depressing to you to think that you spend one seventh of your life on Mondays? Now, Mondays are for a comedian or like our weekends. Mondays, we have a way different relationship than everybody else. I love Mondays. You can't wait for them to come. Yeah. As a comedian, you're just like, it's a Mondays are Saturday. I mean, it's the best, <laughs> right. you know? A guaranteed day off for the most part. Yeah, you feel like your agents are back working now, so then maybe something will happen. You want the business week to be going. Yeah, during the week is, I'm a big fan of yeah. Mondays. Watch a movie by yourself on Monday. I mean, ain't nothing during the day on a Monday. I mean, it's, Mondays are great. Nobody is in those movie theaters in the day on Monday but comedians. Oh, yeah, they don't want to go. We, I mean, yeah, no one likes a Monday like we do. We like a Monday and can dread a Friday. <laughs> right. Or a three-show Saturday. When they started doing the clubs, three shows on a Saturday, I used to be mm -hmm. on that close to midnight show going, just look into the audience's eyes and say, stop me if I've said any of this. Yes, I've done that. Because you don't know what's going on. You've, you've been talking for hours. If they don't respond to the joke, you think, oh, I had to have said it. And then you realize, no, that was just a terrible joke. You're kind of conflicted. 
sometimes you tell a joke and you wait to see what the laugh's supposed to be just to see you're like i might have said this joke before and then i've gotten lost on stage i've said the same joke before i heard one story with henry cho the guy that's open for him i think he was drinking and henry comes out and he hears him tell the same joke again and he goes did he just say the same joke twice and the mc goes no that was the third time <laughs> he told it three in a row <laughs> henry is a pal of mine and i think he must live in your area right he was in mm -hmm. the gallatin area when i knew him and i he's moved about but i remember him introducing me to Krispy cream donut oh yeah. that was like a breakthrough not just that they had the donuts but that they had the hot and now light which i had no idea so we were passing and he just turned the car around he's like the hot now lights on like and we're like what what is that what's going on so he pulled me in there got we got a dozen donuts and ate them and then that became the greatest ritual for us and i remember yeah. that particular location i said to him oh when when he was taking me back to the airport the hot and now light wasn't on but i go i wonder if we can go get a picture with that light on and when we pulled through the drive-through and asked them to turn the light on it was pandemonium. No, don't under no circumstances turn that light on. <laughs> for them. That's funny. And, yeah. and Henry had yeah. enough fame that he's like, oh, for like two seconds, can we just, the guy will stand by it. We'll take the picture. And the guy was like, I, I could get fired for this. It's yeah. going to be DEFCON 1 if I flip that. Traffic's yeah. going to come piling in here. But I, I remember that being a big moment in Tennessee was learning about the hot now yeah. light at Krispy Kreme. You can't pass it up. No, now you are fighting sugar though. At this point in your life, you're having a different mm -hmm. relationship with donuts. I saw you on the podcast somehow quartering and eighthing different donuts to make one donut. This is part of your health regime or your being alive forever routine. What what's the game plan there? It's it's just getting healthy. So I don't drink anymore. And that was something I stopped right when I was doing comedy clubs. And then I was about to start doing theaters. You know, you're just around alcohol, you know, and there's no rules. You have no boss. You have no, like, I realized like this is like three years ago. I, I was like, I got to stop drinking or I'm not going to get to where I want to go. And so I've stopped drinking for three years. And then I'm kind of having that with food now. Like I'm, you know, where I was eating pancakes every day and you're tired and you want, you do want, you got to take naps and multiple naps and you're laying around, you're not doing anything, you have no energy. And so I just have realized like, if I don't get it together now, I, w I can't tour like I want to do. You kind of got to treat your body like an athlete a little bit, like even though we're not athletes, but just the mental focus you got to have for an hour or two hours every single night is a lot. And so it's just kind of looking at it in that light We've been doing it for maybe like three weeks and uh, just trying to get healthy. And I just don't want to be miserable out here. You're just always eating out, you know, it gets old and you're just like, I can't do this anymore. So that's the, that's the point with that now. I do admire that you see the big picture. You see that as you talk about being an athlete, it's like you definitely do want to climb to the top of, of Everest in the business. Mm. You can't stay at a low plateau and sit around just eating jerky and whatever. You've got to really be thinking about every step. It's the same with performance that you've talked about writing a new special. It would be very easy to live off of the first special for a long period of time, but you have mm -hmm. to challenge yourself and you have to be in a zone that unfortunately there's nobody looking after you to do it. I mean, you have a wife and you have a manager, whatever, but in the end, you're the engine of the car. And yeah. if you decide that you're going to fill it full of junk, then it's just going to run clunky. And eventually it'll, somebody will pass that car and you'll be left in the dust. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a great analogy of it. No one needs me to be a comedian. No one cares. I know people like to come to the shows, but it's not like you're a doctor or you're something like this. So you got to prove yourself every night to the audience that comes out. And, you know, you skate by for a long time. But then if you realize, well, if I want to go to the highest level that I would like to go to, yeah, it's got to be railed back in. And then you just get older. I mean, I'm 42, so it's like, it's just not the same. You're just like, yeah, I can't. I just can't do it like I used to. I saw your first Tonight Show, I think, with Jimmy Fallon. Mm -hmm. It was an amazing set. He fell all over it. You've been on a number of times. And when you start to find those cheerleaders and those champions, it's like they're giving you a power boost. It's like a that yeah. hot wheel booster station that shoots you out a little bit further. Yes. You feel like, Hey, I, I owe it to these people to do my very best. If they're going to propel me a little bit further, I need to really do that. I was a very word of mouth guy. So I could see like when people bring an, the audience and like, they're bringing a friend that's like, I found this guy, you got to watch this guy. And so you don't want to let all these people down. Like, and just be like, well, he was, this one was funny. It's like, you just want to stay on top of them. You stay on top of it and keep putting out stuff and not try to get distracted by whatever, you know, whether it's drinking or, I mean, it can become eating and just have the focus. It's really, it's the mental aspect of it. It's something you got to do or you kind of get stuck, I think. Yeah. You talked about your funny family. I have a family who every time we come together, any reunion, whatever, people are always pitching me their million dollar ideas. I don't know if you have family yeah. members like that, but, and I said, you don't really have a million dollar idea. You have a million $1 ideas, right? Yeah. But he, yeah. he pitched me a um, concept of a vampire movie that needs beer to survive. Yeah. And so the 7-Eleven's got beer cans that are punctured with two teeth marks in it and all of that kind of stuff. And this was his big pitch. It's beer killer. Beer killer. Yeah. He was dead set. So the next time I see him, how you doing on that screenplay? I'm like, no, I, nothing. I don't know. You know, he's like, you're not really thinking about it, you know? And I go, yeah. well, I have a tag if you want it. The vampire that lived for a thousand beers. How's that? Just to stave him off for another year. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, oh, that's good. That's good. I want to take a moment. This is my Nate Bergazzi Shark Tank moment yeah. to see whether you want to invest in this idea or not. Because I okay. know that you love gummy bears. That's yeah. one of your addictions. But you're trying, to, you're trying to lay off a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So today, I came up with the concept to protect gummy bears, a safe habitat for gummy bears. And you literally could have the signature Nate Bergazzi's gummy bear sanctuary, where you could still have them yeah. around. But you wouldn't eat them. You know, it'd be more like a petting zoo for gummy bears yeah how much are you willing to invest throw in all of it <laughs> just every bit of it everything all of it and you're gonna find me end up eating them and then it becomes a big problem like we're being court that's where <laughs> i see it going it's just in down a, a, a bad road and, but yeah i mean i you know just to look at them that's where you get canceled is over the idea that you've eaten some of the gummy bears that you've been protecting oh yeah tmz's at your door <laughs> and you're just like no i don't have no yeah. no questions you gotta keep just gotta keep away from the cameras you're drooling some orange and yellow thing out of the side of your mouth yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's obvious it's obvious he's eating them yeah it would become a big problem yeah it's like the what's the tiger king kind of thing but with gummy bears and look what tiger king did great so maybe we can do you know gummy bear king yeah i think you're you're onto something there and he didn't really eat them he just gummed them to death yeah technically to get in a little technical game 
I'm, I'm just such a big fan. So, yeah, anything involved with gummy bears, I'll, I'll throw everything at it. I'm grateful. I know with two shows tonight, we have to let you go. I consider this to be a real honor to have you among our creative conversation and in our community. And I will make it a point if I have an opportunity to make that introduction to, between you and Jerry Seinfeld. I know that you guys will get along famously. I mean, I would love it. That'd be a dream come true. And yeah, I mean, it's an honor to be a part of everybody you've had. I mean, all, you've had everybody that I'm, you know, studied for a very, very long time. So uh, I truly appreciate you having me. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot fun. As in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Stay.